You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26ers, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delicia, and this episode features entertainment attorney, Bajade Davis. Even as a child, Bajade was someone who stuck up for those who couldn't defend themselves. And she's always been a person who does exactly what she says she's going to do. When her father promised her a new car if she got straight A's from sixth grade through high school, Bajade delivered. And when she set her sights on going from Spelman College straight to law school, not even a job from Barclays after a summer at Lehman Brothers could knock her off track. While Bajade had an interest in entertainment law since high school, she actually started her legal career at Sherman & Sterling, where she worked in what they called the corporate pool and eventually settled into corporate finance. But after transitioning to another white shoe law firm and getting some valuable entertainment finance experience, she realized that she did not live, eat, and breathe the world of interest rates and the like, and that it might be time for a change. And lo and behold, After a mentor connected her with an entertainment lawyer, what she thought was just an informal conversation eventually led to a job offer at a boutique law firm. And when that firm split, she followed the partner who brought her in to a new firm and would soon make the move cross-country to California. Today, Bajade represents the likes of singer-songwriter and record producer Neo and producers Tahir Mohammed and Leah Thomas. She's also a co-founder of the nonprofit Decoded, which offers mentoring and other programs designed to help young people unlock their future and realize their full potential. As Bajade embarks on this next chapter of her career and life, she's continuously striving to be like water. And I'll let her explain what that means. So here's her story. Bajide, welcome to the December 26er podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This has been a really long time in the making. Um, People who listen to the show often know that I'm always really excited when my fellow female lawyers uh, come on and make an appearance. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's get into it. Who is Bajide Davis? A really good question. Bajade Davis is a multifaceted individual. I feel like I'm the type of person who I always joke and say, you know, just give me the ball and I'm gonna run with it. Like I'm gonna figure it out. Um, So I feel like I've been that person at my core my entire life. Uh, But she is a daughter, sister, friend, you know, of various people in this world. Just a, a person living in this world and going through life for the first time, like so many other people. So when I think about your career trajectory, it's very obvious to me that like if the ball is lobbed to you, you're going to do what (laughs) needs to be done. Uh, But take me back to the beginning. What was your your upbringing like? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan. Um, Go state, Um, go green, (laughs) go white, as I'm in green right now. But um, yeah, I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, had an amazing childhood there. Both of my parents went to Michigan State. I always joke that, you know, the reason I'm a state fan is because it's my origin story. Like they met on campus. Um, Then after school, after high school, I went to Spelman College in Atlanta. Uh, And after Spelman, I mean, I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. Um, But after Spelman, I went to Emory uh, University School of Law, because at that time in my life, you could not tell me I wouldn't die at a ripe old age, like in Atlanta, Georgia. Like I, it was like 
Fila, Forever I Love Atlanta. Um, and then it turned out that the job, you know, I came out of law school while, you know, we were coming out of like the Great Recession. We were still kind of in it, but like as far as hiring was you know, going for law firms, um, they were hiring much smaller classes. So getting a job in Atlanta actually kind of proved to be more difficult than I thought. And lo and behold, a lot of doors opened and I ended up going to New York. That was where the job was at Sherman and Sterling. So that's where I went. Um, But definitely had little hiccups along the way that I had to kind of like go with. But now I live in Los Angeles and I work at a Black boutique, Black-owned boutique law firm, Granderson Bay Roche. So we're definitely going to get into this working within a Black boutique firm for sure. Um, That's an important conversation Mm -hmm. to have. So like coming from Lansing and then landing in the AUC at Spelman and Mm -hmm. embracing that whole environment. But what was that shift like for you? Um, It was it was interesting, but it was also fine for me. Uh, I know a lot of people go down there and actually have like culture shock or whatever. But for me. I grew up, and when I say culture shock, I know a lot of Black students in the AUC come from, you know, a lot of predominantly white areas sometimes, or like very white schools. That wasn't really my experience. My school, my high school's Lansing when I was there was very diverse. Um, At least that's how I remember it. Um, And I mean, I think my schools were probably close to 50-50 as far as like white, Black, you know, and we had, you know, various, various Hispanic populations, Asian populations, they were much smaller, but our school was pretty diverse. Everyone was pretty cool with each other. I didn't really grow up with a lot of the issues that I think, you know, unfortunately Michigan is in the news for now, as far as race is concerned. I'm not saying that it wasn't there. I just think that in my particular bubble where I grew up, it wasn't the same. Um, Getting down to Atlanta, on top of that, I had a brother. I have three older brothers. Um, my older, my older, one of my older brothers, Teague, well, he actually went to Morehouse and that's how I saw Spelman. So I, I went on Spelman's campus, I think for the first time when I was eight years old. Mm. So I got to see what it looked like. I kind of like, this sounds very cliche, but like when you step on the campus, you kind of just feel like you're at home. Um, like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. I remember having that feeling when I was eight years old and I, I got this like Spelman t-shirt that I wore like my friends from home will tell you I wore that t-shirt every week. <laughs> like It was very ashy after a while because <laughs> I was trying to wear it all the time. But, you know, from then on, everybody knew that I was going to go to Spelman. So the transition for me was I didn't really have that much of a shock. I felt like I was a pretty grounded person. Um, I was able to kind of go maintain the core of who I am, but just grow. And I think that that, for me, that's what's been important throughout my life is keeping people around me who will keep me grounded and keep me my who I am at my core the same while allowing myself to grow and just become a better person, if that makes sense. Yes. So what drove the interest in the law? It's... Uh, Let's see. How far back do we want to go? Um, Let's honestly, go all the way back. We got any any black female attorney that I know <laughs> has some like really early memory of wanting to be a lawyer. Every single one I know. So let's go back to the beginning. Well, I will say, I mean, I went through when I was, let's say, less than 10 years old. I went through a few different like, oh, I want to be this. I want you to know, just like every kid does. But I believe it was around like fifth or sixth grade. It may have been early middle school. Um, my granny who she passed away some time ago, but at that time, like that granny, she was my girl. Everybody, like, I love her. She was like, I learned so much from her. I'm just 
that that's one of my most favorite people in this world and kind of hurts every day that she's not here. But that's another story for another time. But she has super long hair. She, you know, I know all black people want to say, oh, I have Indian in my family. <laughs> like we actually do. And she had really long, beautiful hair. And I'll never forget when she used to press it out and it would be like down to like, you know, her bud and, you know, all, it's beautiful hair. And I'll never forget, I believe it was like middle school. She was taking some type of medicine or there was something that she had to take. I want to say it was a medicine and it started making her hair fall out. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being like, I was furious. And I know that that sounds very very surface because it's hair, right? Like she, she was hurt by it, but she didn't care. She's like, I need this life-saving medicine. But for me, I'm like, you shouldn't have to put something in your body that's going to, you know, make your hair fall out. Um, and it's lost on me what the medicine was, whatever. But I remember at that time I was like, I'm going to sue the people who did this to you. Cause I wanted to be the protector and all that kind of stuff. And so that was like the big flashpoint for me. But, you know, I mean, growing up, everyone always, I was always the kid on the playground who was sticking up for somebody else. Like you want to get to them. You got to go through me. I was always the person like sticking, like sticking my nose. I don't know necessarily where it didn't <laughs> belong, but just kind of advocating and taking up for people that I felt like couldn't do it themselves. So that was my real flashpoint of wanting to become an attorney just in general. Um, at that time, I didn't realize it would be like a class action or, you know, some type of litigator, which I absolutely am not. Um, But I think that that was my real big like point of saying, no, I want to stick up for people and like speak for people who can't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you go and kind of move through school with that in mind. But did you have the ambition that a lot of aspiring lawyers have in that it's the got to get the best grades, got to be at the top of the class, you know, all of that? (laughs) Yeah. So um, any of my girls from home will tell you, my parents, my brothers, everyone will tell you that I was always and have always been the person who, like, if I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And it's interesting to even say that out loud because someone else brought that to my attention from home, like within the past five years or so. Uh, I remember going home for a holiday and, you know, one of my friends was just like, it's really crazy because literally everything you said you were going to do as a kid, you've done it. And I don't know that, you know, they were kind of just like, I'm not sure that you mapped it out that way, but you did it. Um, So for me, it was, I can tell the story of how, you know, as a fifth grader, my dad, uh, my dad worked for GM. And so, um, and he used to get like these cars, he would be able to like bring the cars home, like new cars that they were about to put out. And he would get to like, basically test drive them for a weekend or whatever. And I fell in love with the Oldsmobile Alero. I'm dating myself now, but whatever. <laughs> Not the Alero. Okay. The Alero and like the autumn color was like this really beautiful, like brownish, but like in the light, it would turn purple, whatever. I like love that car. And so I'm like, Daddy, this is the car I want. Like, I want this car because my dad, he um with the four of us, the four kids, when we turned 16, we all got a car. It may not have been a new car, but we got a car. And so I said, when I turn 16, this is the car I want. And so my dad said, Well, I'll do you one better. I'm gonna make you a bet. If you can get nothing but straight A's from here on out, like literally sixth grade, because I think this was the end of fifth grade. So sixth grade all the way through um, 12th grade, I will buy you the car, whatever car you want when you graduate high school to go to college in. And I said, oh, you're on. <laughs> like, that, say less. <laughs> so literally from then on out like that, I think that and then on top of that, like he would give me money every time like a marking period came up and, you know, for my grades. So 
a lot of people say that that's not good. You shouldn't incentivize your kids to do things that they should already be doing, but it absolutely incentivized me. I counted on that money every marking period and I knew I was working toward a car. So I think that they kind of just went hand in hand. Plus, I hate to say this out loud because it may sound a certain way, but school wasn't really that hard for me. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm, I was a brainiac, but it was, to me, it was methodical. It's like, if I do my homework, I can take the test. You know what I mean? Like, and if I figure it out, I may need help. But if I just do what I'm supposed to do, then I can I can have it all right. Like I can play my sports. I can go to my parties. I can do everything I'm supposed to do. So just do what I need to do. So that was my ambition. And I mean, I think getting to college, I remember setting foot on Spelman's campus and being like, now's my time to get a B. (laughs) So (laughs) I aimed a little lower in college, but still graduated summa. So like, whatever, you know, um, but I definitely throughout college as well knew that, no, you know, going to law school, I needed to have great grades. And so I just, again, did it the same way. I'm like, I'm going to front load my schedule. I'm going to work really hard those first couple of years so I can like the last couple of years or last year of my academic career, whether it was high school or college, I can just have fun. And that's what mm-hmm. I did. So. so was the plan at Spelman to go straight through to law school originally? <sighs> yes. And the, the plan for me was always to go straight through because I knew that if I stopped, I might not go back. So my junior year, um, my junior year going into senior year summer, summer of 08, I uh, got a job at Lehman Brothers when it was still Lehman Brothers. <laughs> and, you know, that was my first time in New York. And, and to be honest, I went to New York kicking and screaming, like literally kicking and screaming. My parents are like, I don't understand why you're like being like this. You're the one who accepted the job. And I'm like, yeah, but did I really want to go? Like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, I don't like New York. I don't want to go. You know, I want to be in Atlanta, you know, whatever. So, but you know, God has better plans is really what it is. Um, so ended up going to New York, had an amazing time that summer. And of course, obviously, that was the fall of Wall Street that that summer. And I remember, you know, they when Barclays came in and bought Lehman Brothers, they extended the offers to all of us. And I, you know, I had an offer in hand to go to New York after school. And I thought about it. That was the first time I thought about breaking up and like not going straight through. But I knew I said, you know what, if I don't go to law school right now, I am afraid I will get caught in a trap of making money, living my life out in the big city and just not become a lawyer. And I didn't want to do that. So. So you decide on Emory. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the conversations that we've had on this show and I have with a lot of folks um, about law school is, you know, a lot of people see it as the first time you're in an academic environment where everyone for the most part is as driven as you. Mm. And, and it feels like a different level of competitiveness. Did you experience that at Emory? Competitiveness? Yes. Um, but not within my friend circle. So mm-hmm. my friend circle, and and we can get into the inspiration of my foundation later, cause it actually yeah. got of law school, but, um, my friend group, you know, the Black Law Students Association, and within my class of, say, three, two, 250, 300 kids, I want to say there were no more uh, than 12, maybe 15. 15 feels really gracious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we just kind of coalesced together. And this sounds bad when I say it out loud, but there was like this area that was known as Little Africa in Emory's um, outside of like, kind of like, uh, where the lockers and everything was like outside of the classroom. And that's where we will all congregate. And I mean, Balsa members of 
you know, one L's, two L's, three L's, but like specifically our one L class would all gather there. So I feel like within our group, there was no competition because we knew that it was us, you know, Mm -hmm. and all we had was us. And it was like, let's help each other out. I would say outside of that group, as a general matter, I would say no. But of course, every law school has their gunner, right? And those gunners were extra gunners. But those are people I just honestly didn't associate with because it's like, who likes those people anyway? (laughs) Right. Um, but I never felt I, like, I don't think, you know, the, the stories about people hiding books or like people doing things like that. I don't recall that, but you know, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I just may not have been paying attention to those people. For sure. So, you know, a lot of people I think who enter law school, who have an affinity towards like networking and having a strong social network and all that stuff can often gravitate towards sports and entertainment work. Mm. It's not a lot of people who can like carry it through because it can be a difficult industry to get into. And, and it's not as glamorous on the inside as it is from the outside. Right. So a lot of people just either never make it in, they become disillusioned in the yeah. process. But when did you decide like entertainment work is what I want to do? Yeah. So just a point on what you're saying about a lot of people want to be in entertainment work a lot. And I see this now that I co-head the um, internship program at my firm. You know, you see kids who have nothing and I shouldn't students who have nothing on their resume to say that they want to do entertainment. And that's fine. I mean, I, it may have been the same for me. Right. But uh, when you don't have a demonstrated interest, it's kind of easy to see like, oh, you just think that this is sexy. Like yep. this you just think that this is sexy and it's fun. It's great. But at the same time, you have to have a real passion for this work to deal with the you know different types of things that come across our desk. Um, but back to your question that I actually decided I want to be an entertainment lawyer in like law school. I mean, excuse me, high school. I remember, I don't remember which Will Smith film it was, <laughs> but there was some Will Smith film. I think it was his first time making over $20 million or something. And it was announced. And I was like, $20 million for one film? Like what? And then I, you know, I had been reading up because at that time I was so into music. And so I was like thinking, how can I be in the music industry? Um, like I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a music video director. Like just a whole bunch of stuff. Like, uh, but, uh, I remember seeing that and like, well, I'm like $20 million. And I was like, his lawyers, how much, like I can carry the one. And, you know, I was like, you know, not completely motivated by money, but I remember thinking like, that's insane that I didn't know that they had these budgets for this movie for movies like this. And so I started looking more into entertainment law and, you know, I always felt like growing up, you know, as I'm sure so many black girls, young black girls did, you know, me and my friends had a singing group and, you know, all these kind of things. And it's like, well, I can sing okay. I can dance just fine. I'm sure, you know, I never acted outside of school plays, but like, I'm sure if you gave me a script, I could like, you know, do a little something. I wouldn't be terrible, but I, I'm not, I can't do any of that on a professional level, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not an entertainer. And I know my, you know, my, one of my things is like, know your place. Like I know my place and it's not to be talent. So, but I knew that I was smart enough to be able to help those people. And that went back to my original, like why I wanted to be a lawyer that like all clicked together for me. Like, oh, I just want to help people advocate for people who don't know how to advocate for themselves. And I'm smart enough to do that. So that was how it became a passion for me to be in a place where I can kind of touch everything like music, movies, every, you know, every facet of entertainment and just be the brains. That That's where, that's where it came from for me um, as far as becoming an entertainment lawyer. That's so, where, com- so coming out of law school, how did your legal career start? 
Oh, I mean, I, I took, you know, in law school, they they give you like one of two roads. It always feels like uh, it's like, are you going to be a litigator of some sort or are you going to be like go to big law and be a transactional corporate attorney? And at that time, I will say part of me, I knew that I couldn't go straight into entertainment because at that time, entertainment firms weren't really hiring straight out of law school. And I'm not sure that they still do. Some of them, I feel like, you know, more than they did at that time. But I knew that I couldn't do that. And so I was thinking, you know, and at the time I thought the Holy Grail was in-house. And so I'm like, okay, well, one day I'm just going to work in-house at Viacom because we didn't have Netflix and all that yet. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going to work in-house at Viacom. Then then I can like, you know, BGC and, you know, be over VH1 and BT and, you know, all the Viacom properties. So I was like, I'm going to go into M&A. Um, hmm corporate law, things like that. And so I started focusing classwork on, you know, taking those type of courses and things like that. Um, And then when I got out of law school, I ended up going to big law in New York, which I didn't necessarily see for myself coming, but that's the the doors open interviews went well with them. Um, And so that's, that's where I started out at Sherman and Sterling. And I started out at that time, they were piloting this new program called like the corporate pool. Mm. So essentially you were either, in litigation at Sherman, or you were in what they called the corporate pool, which basically was like all of the corporate groups could call on you at any time, except for like, maybe I think like antitrust and and one other, maybe IP, I can't remember, but they were like two groups that that weren't part of the pool. And so myself and all my classmates, I think there were like 50 of us, because again, they were still doing smaller classes. Um, Yeah, by assignment by assignment, we would just float to different like one day I might be doing an M&A assignment. Another day I might be doing capital markets and, you know, project development and finance, you know, straight transactional finance. It just kind of bopped around, which ended up being really, really helpful for me in my career because I got to see a lot of different things and a lot of different transactions over, you know, that was just for the first two years of my career. And then I settled in project development and finance at Sherman and Sterling. So thinking about those first couple of years of being an associate, right? We all know what that is like. <laughs> Um, and it, it can, it can turn a lot of people off to law firm life period. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, to your earlier point, like I'm just ready to go in house. Like, I mm-hmm. don't want to do this anymore. The hours being on call constantly being the corporate drone. Um, but you stayed on that law firm. Yeah. Path, right. Yeah. So what has kept you there? What has kept you as outside counsel? Are you talking about then or now? Well, let's start with, let's start with then. <laughs> Then we'll talk about how you made the switch into entertainment and then we'll talk about now. Yeah. So I think then it was kind of, then I think, you know, I I always say that I try to be like water and just try to like go with the flow, see what happens. And, you know, not that I let life happen to me or I'm not trying to take direction um, of my life, but at the same time, it's like, you know, water is pretty forceful when it, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So for me, it was like, what can I do right now to sharpen my skills? I had to have, and I tell all of my interns and mentees and anyone who will listen, frankly, at some point you're going to have your come to Jesus moment. Like whatever you believe in, you will have your moment with them. Um, And I've had a few. (laughs) And so at that first firm, I had to have the come to Jesus moment of, you know, I think I was like a first year and I wanted to be in the M&A group um, at this time. And I realized, even though I was doing M&A assignments, I kind of just looked at what my peers, you know, my seniors were doing. So I kind of tried to see what my life would look like as a second year, as a third year, as a fourth year, as a fifth year in whatever group. Right. And so 
I knew that as a first year, I was doing diligence, we'll just say, right? And then maybe the third year was reviewing my diligence. And I was like, I remember thinking, hmm, do I want to be three years in doing diligence? And that's not to say anything against anyone who is doing that. But I didn't know if I would pick up any other skills along the way. And I knew that as a lawyer, I needed to have drafting skills. I needed to be thinking like in the documents, doing things if I wanted to be like water and be ready for whatever opportunities came my way. I couldn't just be a diligence master. So for me at that point, that was my come to Jesus moment of saying, okay, now I'm going to hunt skills. So I'm going to pick up assignments. I mean, to the extent I had, you know, control over it. It's like, I'm going to pick up assignments where and try to work with people who will give me the opportunity to actually give me the ball and see what I do with it instead of just giving me like, you know, these small little things. I still did that stuff, but I also would straight up ask like, hey, can I, can I draft this? Can I do this? Can I do that? Like, you know, um, just trying to get skills, even if I was wrong, I just needed to try. So that's what I, I started to do there. And that's kind of what kept me going. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I have to give a big credit to my friends at that firm. I can, I can survive a lot if I like the people. <laughs> and every firm I've worked with, worked at, I had, you know, friends that to this day are still some of my best friends. And it's like, we're all in this together. Uh, I have a friend, um, Kate, she, <laughs> she and I talk all the time. We don't work together anymore, but we talk all the time about those early years at Sherman when we would just, you know, we would comfort each other. Like, oh my God, we're both still here. It's 2 a.m. Like, what are we going to do to lift our spirits? You know, those type of things. And Having those type of people behind you and with you in the trenches in the trenches definitely helps. So you get this experience, you're hunting these these core skills that really are laying the foundation for the next phase of your career. Exactly. How did you know it was time to make the leap from Sherman and Sterling? To be honest, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't looking for a new job. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, recruiters recruiters are recruiters and they're always recruiting, right? Like they got to pay their bills too. And so one day I um, answered either call or email, I don't remember, um, of this woman talking about entertainment finance. And at that time I was already in finance, like project development and finance, which is really um, you're financing assets or, you know, things. So project development and finance, you know, you're in a lot of emerging countries, you're building bridges, funding like hydro, renewable energy sources, things like that. Um, So I remember thinking like, okay, so entertainment finance, you're still financing assets. The asset is just a movie. Like I can probably do that. And so I, you know, against, I mean, I I must've said no to a million recruiters, but, you know, I actually took the call on this one or whatever, and actually went on the interview at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus um, and ended up in New York and ended up loving the people that I interviewed with and saw it as, okay, so I was interviewing with their transactional finance group. But they also had the entertainment finance subgroup within that group. And I wanted to be in that because I found it, okay, I'm getting closer to entertainment. Again, this is being like water. And like now this door has opened up a little bit with a crack. So like water can get through that. Like I can get through and start to build skills and see what that's like and get closer to entertainment. So that's really what ended up happening. And then also one of my other best friends at the firm, uh, Joshua, I remember he popped into my office and was like, oh, I'm leaving. And he was in, we were in the same project development and finance group, same year, everything. And he was like, I'm leaving. And I'm like, you're leaving. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, I wish you had told me like, say less. So am I. (laughs) And so so, like, I mean, like that really sped up the pace, but yeah. So, you know, working at these firms that anybody who has any kind of corporate experience or legal experience are going to know these Mm -hmm. names. Right. And then there comes a time for lawyers where often they have to make a decision. 
Like, am I on the partner track? Mm -hmm. Am I going in house or am I going to a boutique firm? Yeah. Did you have that come to Jesus moment at Morgan or later? Oh, no, it was at Morgan. Uh, And it was again, it was one of those flashpoint moments. Um, Again, more people that I loved working with. And I mean, I was working. I was I was decent at my job. I was great. I was, you know, doing my thing. I was learning more. Um, and I, I, I love the people at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius and, and my group. And there were, there was a group of us at the time. Um, it was two partners, another associate and myself, and we all pretty much hung out. Um, and we would go get lunch some days, like things like that. And so I remember we were eating lunch one day and I remember one of the partners brought up like interest rates or something. I can't, something very finance and, and was talking about the finance news of the day. And I had read the finance news of the day because I get law 360. We all do. Right. I, I, I read the headlines and things, you know, read the blurbs on the way in. But I remember also thinking, I don't want to talk about this right now. <laughs> like, I remember thinking, you know, if I stay here, I could probably make partner. I could probably keep going and doing, you know, excelling here. Right. But is my heart in it? And when I was talking to them about it, I felt like their heart was in it. Like, oh, you wake up, read these things, you live, eat, breathe finance. And I just don't like, it's not that I hate it. It's just, I'm not something that I live and eat and breathe. Um, So I was just like, you know what? I'm actually more interested. I remember thinking like, I want to talk about what Kim Kardashian did yesterday. Like, you know what I mean? Because I can't remember what, like, during that time, there she was in the news specifically about something. Maybe it was like Chris Humphreys. I can't remember. But she was in the news about something specifically. And I was just like, I we're at lunch. I'd rather talk about that than, like, finance interest rates and what the Fed's going to do. And so at that point, I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to figure this out because while I could stay here, I could excel, I could do everything, and I like these people. What happens again if these people leave? What happens, like, this is not going to be, like, if I'm, to me, to operate at a partner level in a law firm, you need to love what you're doing. Anyone can be an associate, but you need to love what you're doing if you're going to be a partner and this is going to take up so much of your time and going to affect your life in such a big way. And I was just like, I don't know that I really feel that way about this. I love the people, but the work, you know. So that was really the flashpoint, like, in, in that part of my career where I was like, yeah, I need to figure something else out. So what did figuring something else out look like for you? So again, entertainment boutiques don't really like put out listings and like those things don't really happen. So I just kind of, I, I don't remember. I think at that point I was already part of like a black woman's um, like entertainment and sports group in the city. And so, you know, meet with them and just, you know, and and these were women who were in-house at like Spotify or Viacom or various places. And so I would keep in touch with them and, you know, sometimes they would have openings, but of course I was still kind of too junior for any of those openings, at least on paper. And I still wasn't completely sure I had given up on law firm life yet. I felt like I had more to learn because now I'm essentially talking about switching my practice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I just started trying to seek out mentors and trying to figure out just gather information gathering at that point. And so one of my, you know, as New York serendipity happens. Um, I was, I got on the train one morning and one of my mentors from Sherman and Sterling, Barbara was on the train and we hadn't seen each other in a while in a while. And we talking and talking and, um, she knew that I had always wanted to get into entertainment. And so she tells me like, Oh, you should talk to Andre. 
And I'm like, who's Andre? She's like, you should talk to Andre De Roche. He used to work at Sherman. You know, I know him. He used to work in our group. This was before your time, but he's great. You should just talk to him, get some advice on like, what's it like to be an entertainment lawyer, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, okay. And you know, it's kind of one of those things. And Barbara, if you listen, if you are listening to this, I promise I did not doubt you for real. But like, you know, it was one of those things where like you hear people say things in passing and it's like, are you really going to connect us? Maybe she'll connect us. Maybe she'll forget whatever. But of course, Barbara being Barbara, she actually did connect us. And um, I went to his office to really just talk. And so we're just talking. And when I tell you it was super like <laughs> so informal, we're just talking. And at the end of our conversation, which I felt like super, you know, I was full. Like I was just so happy that he took the time as his partner, name partner in his own firm. Um, he just took this time to talk to me about the business. And at the end of it, he says, you know, I think we might be having an opening coming up. Can you send me your resume? And I remember being like, what was this an interview? <laughs> like, I was not very interviewee uh, in here. Okay. I was very lax and, you know, whatever. And he was like, no, like you're dope. Like, you know, whatever he said. And so that started that process. Um, and that's how I found my job at Gray Krause and Lede Roche. So thinking about that, right. There's, I think people who don't, haven't worked in the law field or have an interest in moving into the law or going to law school, whatever, often equate like big firms with big money, mm-hmm. boutique firms, different experience, maybe not as long of hours, but no money, right? Or or less money, not realizing that there are some boutique firms out here that like are getting to it, right? <laughs> in a very real way. But right. were you having thoughts in your mind at that point about like, well, if I leave big law, am I going to be able to maintain the lifestyle that I maintain now? Is there a greater opportunity for me, for me to make money because entertainment, which often has a different structure? Were you thinking about those things? Yes and no. So for me, just as a general thing, like I was raised with like, you know, my parents would always say money isn't everything, you know, and it's important. You need it to get by, but don't be a captor of a captive, like a prisoner of money, basically. Essentially, God will always provide and you will figure it out. <laughs> so, but with that being said, obviously, you know, by the time I left Big Life, I think I was like a sixth or seventh year. So I was mm-hmm. making very nice money. Right. And I remember thinking, okay, if I am serious about making the switch to entertainment, knowing this is before I even met with GKSD, but knowing that if I'm going to leave Big Law and switch to any type of boutiques, which even if I were going to go in house, I knew that there would be a pay cut. And so I had to think about that. And I was like, well, if I'm going to go, now is probably a better time to go than when I'm a ninth or 10th year and I'm making way more money than I'm making now. And essentially you get golden handcuffs. Yes. So I I feel like there are people who are still in big law who absolutely hate their life, but then now they they've you know, come to a certain level of living and they become accustomed to that. And they're like, I got to make this money so that I can pay for this Fifth Avenue apartment. I can make, you know what I mean? All these things. And I'm kind of just like, I remember thinking about it and trying to project forward and thinking, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it now because I, you know, am not married. I don't have kids. I don't have, I'm responsible for me, you know? Um, so that was avoiding the golden handcuffs was a calculus for sure. And, you know, people, even if you go into it saying, I'm going to live below my means, I'm not going to get used to the money. Mm-hmm. There is just a part of working at that level. Yeah. That your life just has to elevate in a way. Like it's many things. It's who you're entertaining, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, 
okay, I don't even have time to clean my own place. Like there's so many. So you just start to sort of adjust, even if you want to resist that, um, to making a certain level of money, which then of course turns into having to stay there to to your point. Um, so making the switch though, and I definitely get your, your thought process about like, let me do that now. I think I sort of had a similar come to Jesus moment. Um, but let me do that now. And you go to the smaller firm. Was there a culture shock for you though? Or were you like, this is where I was always meant to be? No, it was definitely like a, this is where I was always meant to be type of moment. I mean, if you want to call it culture shock, the culture shock would have been, oh, I can wear jeans every day to work. I can, you know what I mean? I can like, you know. Like it, the, the office itself was very entertainmenty. I don't know if that makes any sense, but essentially it was, uh, it was in Chelsea. I mean, the office is still there. We're just not there, but it was in Chelsea, and it was, um, you walk, you would walk in, and you would see all these movie, you know, autographed movie posters of movies that people worked on. Um, there was like a post studio in the back of our office because we shared space with like a with um like sound mixers, basically. So people would come in like Bruce Willis, 50 Cent would come in and go to the back to, you know, do their voiceovers on on projects and things like that. Uh, We had, you know, uh, a finishing room, you know, like an actual, like a screening room in the office. Like I remember those things being like, wow, this is really cool. And like on Fridays, we would play like beer pong and like things like that. So I remember like, oh, that's really cool. But for me, it was, it just felt like, again, the same thing of kind of when I stepped on foot you know, stepped onto Spelman's campus and being like, oh, this feels right. It felt right. Like, it was just like, this is somewhere that I'm supposed to be. I can grow here. I can be more of myself here. And how did your practice change? Well, I mean, I still did entertainment finance work a little bit, but obviously less at a smaller clip than I was doing every day at Morgan Lewis. Um, But I started doing film and TV work predominantly. Um, I would I really like at that point in my career, really like literally just scratched the surface on music. But um, I was I I started doing, you know, working on shows on HBO, working on various films, indie and otherwise, you know, we we go to Sundance as a firm, like things like that, switching your practice over and just seeing like, okay, now these agreements are different because now we're doing talent agreements. Now we're doing writer director agreements. Now, you know what I mean? We're doing production council work. It's just a different agreement, but I, I always credit my experience at the first two firms because I think that that, you know, having the ability to draft language, having the ability to read through a contract and distill out what, what you're supposed to have and what's important. Um, I think all of that informed and made my, my transition a lot easier. And speaking of transitions, it's, it's, that's a great segue into talking about you moving from the East Coast to mm-hmm. the West Coast. So how did that come about? So I had been at my firm for like a year, we'll say. I think it was about a year, maybe a little bit less. And um, essentially GKSD was getting ready to, like the the partners had decided that they were going to, I guess, dissolve the firm and people were going to go their separate ways. And so Andre, you know, brought me and a few other people along with him to a new firm, um, which would now become Granderson Des Rochers. Um, and after I think all that was being discussed, you know, the people, the Granderson part of our firm <laughs> was essentially in in L.A. Uh, and it was kind of they just asked me, to be honest. It was one of those things where one of my partners called me and they said, you know what, do you want to move to L.A.? Like, I know you've been flirting with this idea. Um, do you want to move? 
And it's interesting because I'd only talked to them a couple of times about it, but I had written down and, you know, we can get in conversation about manifesting, I guess, but I had written down that because uh, before 2018, we'll call it, I hadn't been really to LA. I'd only been on layovers, long layovers. And so I remember thinking like, okay, if I'm going to ever move to LA, I need to actually go and visit. And so I remember thinking, okay, in 2019, 2019 is going to be the year of LA. I'm going to go. And I had a plan. I was like, I'm going to go at least four times. Each visit's going to be for a separate thing. Um, you know, one, one visit's just going to be like, let's have a lot of fun, go out, see if I can have a social life here. One visit's going to be, let's, you know, go to different areas to see where I want to live. One visit's going to be for this, you know, whatever. And so I got to about my second visit. And that's after that visit, I had gotten back. And after that visit, they were just like, do you want to move? Um, you know, we would love to have you in LA. And I remember thinking at first, I was actually with my parents when I got the call and I was like, I, I freaked out a little bit. I was just like, I don't know if I really want to do this. Like, do I want to move to LA? And I talked to my dad about it. And my dad was like, go, you're young. You have no attachments. Like you have nothing holding you in New York. Just if New York as a city will be there. And if you don't like LA, you can always move back. And so I called, I called my partner back like same day and was like, let's do it. And that's literally what it was. <laughs> it was that simple. I hadn't, again, being like water, right? Just being okay with the opportunity presenting itself because I, I, and my plans hadn't planned to move to LA until September, 2020. And we, what happened in 2020. So, you know, I really think that that was like really God moving in my life where he's like, ah, I, I don't know that you're going to want to move in 2020. <laughs> Let me right. this. <laughs> So exactly. So like, you know, we've talked a lot about, and of course, like setting the plans and executing on that plans and moving through professional chapters really resonates with me. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you have this kind of personality and this kind of ambition, but also having the ability to really lock in from a setting a vision perspective and manifesting that it oftentimes a career aligns, like the career, like comes under subjection and moves with you, you invest into it, you get the return, right? And that has happened for you. Do you feel like what has happened for you professionally has mirrored your personal life in that you've had a level of balance and receiving what you what you would like to have in your life personally as you have professionally? Hmm, that is an amazing question. Um, I think for the most part, because I think when I focus on making sure that I'm surrounded by the right things. I, you know, in my personal life, that's going to be love, right? Like mm -hmm. whether that's friendship, love, romantic love, family love, like all different types of love. I don't, I don't, I'm, and I'm sure no one does seek out to have negative forces around them. Um, I think that for me, it reflects the same because I work to try to make them balance. And mm -hmm. I think work, it was a lot harder to achieve that balance. I think in LA, it's a lot easier to achieve that balance because it's more important to people here. Um, I mean, in New York, I feel like I was always the friend, especially when I was in big law. I mean, I was always the friend who, who people would call me for plans and I'd be like, sure, work permitting, work permitting, work permitting, work permitting. And at that time, I'm not sure I had that balance, but I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to be, you know, really figure out what's important and try to keep that balance, keep boundaries um, while still maintaining my professionalism and my, you know, making sure that I'm not falling down on my job, but at the same time saying like, no, mental health is important. My boundaries are important. All those kind of things at the same time. So I would say yes. I'm not sure if that completely answers your question, but I, I would say yes. Yeah. It wasn't until I started doing business on the West Coast that I'd ever heard somebody 
set a meeting time by saying like around, oh, we can meet around <laughs> two o'clock. And I was like, no, no, it needs to be at two or two fifteen right. or two. Th- like you have to tell me what time we're meeting. And it was just, it is very much of they get business done. They close deals, obviously things move, but it's a much more lax sort of approach than what you would see in New York, which is very rigid, very black and white. You yeah. know, there's no, there's no room for error uh, yeah. in terms of when meetings start on time. Yeah. I think it's just a, a function of who people are working for out here and just the culture of California. I thought it was all like, I, I was like, this is malarkey. Like there's no way y'all are this lax out here. And then I got out here and I was like, oh, y'all, y'all really take this lunch thing. Like lunch culture isn't like serious out here in New York. You go to just salad or chopped or whatever you eat under over your desk, like super quick. And then you throw it away and you get back to work here. Even if you just walk to get something to eat, you walk leisurely, you take Mm -hmm. your time, you come back, you eat. It's just a different, like, it's just a different vibe. I know that sounds really cliche, but it's really just a different vibe. And I'm like, man, someone needs to do a study on how long people live in New York versus how long people live in LA. Cause I'd be really interested in that information. (laughs) Listen, New York is its own beast. I definitely like, I didn't, I didn't really realize it from having, you know, practiced the entirety of my career there. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that until we were home, you know, home for <laughs> the pandemic for so long. Mm-hmm. And then going back to the city, I remember like the first day heading to my office in the city and people were like outpacing me on the street. And I'm usually the person who is bobbing and weaving and outpacing yeah. people and like realizing how much I had really slowed down yeah. just by virtue of being home. Yeah. I'm like, I was really on 10, 24 seven, you know, <laughs> pre-pandemic. So it's, it's a we different even it, Right. Which is... It- honestly kind of an issue i'm not you know i just remember just like you're saying always what like walking fast and you know making sure that i was getting from point a to point b and as quick as possible and things like that and i still do that but at the same time it's just i can't put my finger on it other than to say it's just new york it's just different Mm -hmm. absolutely so let's switch gears to talk about your foundation yeah so my foundation um decoded uh, it is a nonprofit that I, you know, founded with some of my best friends from, you know, home, uh, in Michigan. It's basically our whole thing is why should you have to reinvent the wheel if I've already done what you've done before? So it's decoding your future, um, and, and the futures of like, you know, high school students, middle school students, even college graduate students. And the idea of it, came, it was twofold. One, um, when I was in law school, I actually would go back to the AUC under this program that, you know, we kind of created in in Balsa called Each One Reach One, which was really like lifting as we climb, right? And so I remembered when I was in law school being at Spelman and wanting to know more about how, like getting into law school, that entire process, right? Having people come and speak at the pre-law society and things like that. And so I wanted to make sure that I was going back and doing that for current Spelman students. Um, but also in law school, again, I told you there were, what, 12 to 15 in my year of Black people. And I remember like one a year, that first you know round of finals. And I remember thinking out of like 12, 15 of us, I think only one of us had a parent who was a lawyer or you know had a lawyer in the family. And so uh, I remember looking around at all of our counterparts who had mama was a lawyer, daddy was a lawyer, brother is a lawyer, granddaddy was a lawyer, you know, all the, so they knew what to do. They knew how finals were going to go. They, they knew what to expect. And for the, for us, this little microcosm, we had one person 
who had had a person, you know, a, a lawyer in the family. But other than that, the rest of us, we just didn't know. And so I didn't, I felt like that was, a, that's a piece of where the inequality comes from. Because how do you see yourself being something if you don't have something to look at, number one, but even further than that, because obviously I, I don't have a lawyer in my family and I decide to be a lawyer. So it's not that it's necessary, but it's like, once you get there, once you get to the altar, how do you know what you're supposed to do? What's expected of you? How, how to get these jobs, how to network all these things. So that was the first thing. That's when the, the seed was planted in law school. But then also um, when I was in New York, um, call it 2013, maybe. Um, I remember the, um, he's now the principal of our, uh, my alma mater high school. Um, Dan Bogan called me and he said, Hey, Bajaday, like, you know, he, he would, we would text and talk all the time anyway, because we were close from when I was in school. And so he called me out of the blue one night and was like, well, one day and was like, I want to talk to you. I have a student here. She's on the track team. And she doesn't believe that anyone who came from Lansing went on to do something great, basically. Like, doesn't believe that, you know, people like you exist. And I keep telling her, oh, I can go through my my phone and call a million people who have gone on to do great things in your life in their lives. So I'm going to have you talk to her. And so I talked to her and it was really, she was really coming from a place of, I've never seen anybody be anything. So why would I be anything? And I was like, oh my God, like that, it like really like kickstarted me, even though I had zero time was working to 2 a.m. every morning. It really jumpstarted me to say, okay, I called my girls and was like, hey, we got to get something together for the kids at home because somehow they're losing hope. They're, they're not seeing any positive role models right now. And they don't even know where to start. So they may have these dreams, but they don't know how to start. And so they're giving up before they even start. And so that's how Dakota was born, essentially. Um, and so we've been pretty busy recently. So like we're actually going to talk about more of our programming. Next time I go home, we're going to talk about our programming, have our meetings and like really get things back together. But essentially it operates as a mentoring foundation where we can connect people that, you know, in any, you know, any random field. So if I know a doctor, then I know a student who wants to be a doctor. Why are they not connected? Because you're going to need to know what classes to take, how to get into school, you know, what to, you know, freak out about, what not to freak out about, just someone to give you the blueprint. That's really where it comes from. So how have you been able to really balance, uh, talking about boundaries and all of that, balance this work, which is incredibly important in investing in the next generation, while also probably being at a point in your career where building your own book of business is important as well? I haven't. So <laughs> that is... <laughs> Um, there was definitely a time where I had a lot more time for it. And right now I will say my time is limited. That's why we're going to regroup. Um, when I go home, I go home relatively frequently. So, um, we just try to have meetings while I'm there in person. Sometimes we, you know, have them over the phone via text, but really just regroup, re-strategize and keep, you know, pushing out for the next um, year because during the pandemic didn't feel like there was a lot we could do because everybody was kind of, when I say the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, but when I had the at home part of the pandemic, um, I felt like everyone was really just finding their way. And even with schools, they were just trying to figure out like, how are we going to do at home schooling? So even partnering with schools at that point was difficult. So on top of me being insanely busy, all of us being in type being insanely busy. And then, you know, schools trying to figure out what, you know, they were going to do. It's kind of like, okay, let's take a regroup moment. Mm -hmm. So I will be meeting with Dan Bogan, um, at the principal at my alma mater, Sexton High School in Lansing to really just like strategize and figure out like, what do you need at this point now that school looks so different? 
how can we help? So that that's going to be in the next few months. And hopefully we can relaunch and like really, really get back in there with the kids. Like, cause right now kids aren't even, they're back in the building, but they, some of them aren't because I think don't quote me, but I think if they decide to, if their parents, you know, don't want to get them vaccinated or, you know, whatever, they don't have to go to school. They can still do, they can opt to do, um, homeschooling, you know, virtual school or whatever. So kind of just trying to see how the rest of this is going to play out and how we can be, you know, useful to them. Awesome. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I would say a time, I mean, there were multiple times, but one that sticks out in my head is when I was a first year um, at Sherman and I was working crazy, crazy hours. And there was just a lot that was required of me at that time, even as a first year. And I had never experienced anything like it where, and when I say anything like it, I mean, you know, working on capital markets deals to your up, you know, till, you know, 6am. And then it's like, oh, let me go home and sleep for two hours and come back. Like I, you know, I'm a night owl and I had never really experienced that, especially on such, you know, multiple days in a row. And I would say that became my, my ordinary days, but it caused me to have to be extraordinary because I still had to be smart. You know, it wasn't like I could just, I couldn't just mail it in. I had to like, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars, um, predicated on these deals and they can't be wrong. And even though, you know, you say, oh, she's a first year, she can't have that much to do with it. We had a lot to do with it. There are, you know, and these things are being filed with the SEC. Like you Google my name right now, my name comes up on so many filings with the SEC. And it's like, this stuff needs to be right. Because if I fall asleep on the job, there's going to be fines. There's going to, you know, there's a lot attached to it. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, I was also dealing with an associate, I will leave nameless, um, who was not that kind to me, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, he was, he was a nice enough person, but he was not a kind person, um, especially during the deals. So when I say that he would literally send me 200 emails in a day, he would send me 200 emails in a day. Mind you, I'm getting emails from everyone else. So that's not even, but getting 200 one word or like just in the sentence, you know, just in the subject box, it got to a point, it got to a pressure point where I said, Hey, if you want me to be effective for you, you are going to have to focus your requests. Send me one email with everything you need because I can't do my job because you're sending me too many emails. And I remember thinking, I remember before I, it got to that point, I was like, I'm going to have to do this. And I remember thinking like, oh no, it'll get better, it'll get better. And then a deal will close and he would be the super nice person, you know, all that kind of stuff. It almost felt like uh, a an abusive relationship. I I don't want to like, you know, generalize or kind of, you know, co-op that term because there was no true abuse, you know, anything like that. But I say that in that he would be very mean to me during a deal and then super nice to me as soon as the deal closed. And I'm like, I I would be like, oh, he's so nice. And then we'd get staffed together on the deal. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to ruin my life. And it was just riding this up and this down. And so when I finally realized that I had to stand up to him, even, you know, being such a baby in my career and he's so much more senior to me. And I was just like, I can't do this. I can't be effective for you if you don't do this. I felt like that was me taking back my power, what little power I probably had, but taking back my power and my autonomy as a human to stand up and say, you know what? I know that I'm lower on the rung than you, but you're not going to treat me this way. And what you're doing is not like, we're not being efficient. 
because you're sending me 200 emails. And while I'm checking your 200 emails, I can't read the document you need me to do. I can't do the work you need me to do. So if you want my best work, we're going to have to figure something else out. And I think that was like one of the first times it was early on in my career, but it was one of the first times I had to find my voice. And I've never, and as a person who always has had their voice, but sometimes may, you know, especially in work context, I feel like as black women, you know, we put a lot on how are we perceived? Um, and we don't want to, we may not want to say certain things because we don't want to be the angry black woman or we want, we don't want to be seen, you know, as an a-hole or whatever. But at that point it was like, it's either my mental health or you're going to get your feelings hurt. I'm guessing you're about to get your feelings hurt. <laughs> so, um, as a young lawyer, I would say that was probably, you know, one that comes to mind for sure. Yeah. I think this definitely like triggered my PTSD, even hearing this story. <laughs> See, everyone has one though. And after I worked with him, honestly, there were other associates who came through and worked with like, you know, female associates who came through and worked with him and they would come to me like, how do I deal with him? And I'm like, Hey, you gotta stand your ground. Cause if you don't stand your ground, he's going to run all over you. And eventually, you know, they caught on and, you know, other things happened, but yeah, like it, it was not a good time. I remember I was like, you are making my life a living hell right now. And that I don't, allow people to do that to me. I'm a very outspoken spoken person. So I just had to find my my voice professionally, you know? Uh like I can't cuss you out, but I'm gonna definitely let you know that this ain't what, what we're not about to do. Right. <laughs> so yeah. So what is it that you want out of the next phase of your life, both personally and professionally, in addition to the the foundation work that you have on the horizon? Um, well, I was recently named to Variety Magazine's 2021, like new leaders in Hollywood, which was like a super big accomplishment for me and super, you know, honored to have been put on that list. Congrats. Thank you. Congrats. It also felt like a launching pad, you know, like, um, I remember so many of my friends and family saying like, oh my God, this is so great. How does it feel? And in my head, I'm like, I, I, all I could hear was Kobe Bryant, um, in that press conference when he's like, job's not finished. Like, is the job finished? Like, I don't think so. Like, job's not finished. And so for me, it's, I, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say it's like, oh, I want this, you know, whatever checking off things. It's more so continuing to be like water because it's, you know, provided for me very well, being open and just continually trying to be better, getting more clients and helping them in any way that I, I can at my firm and being a better, you know, steward of my firm, that being, you know, what leadership positions can I take? How can I help people out? Can I share my knowledge in X, Y, Z ways? How can I be a student? Um, just continually going up, up, up. And to me, that's, that's the job. And that's why it's never finished. And I think that's a great place to end on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for spending time with the December 26th family. Yeah, for sure. This is amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad we were able to um, get together and talk. Yeah. Yes, it's been a long time coming and we are all about building networks here. And to your point, making sure that those who are coming behind us and looking to lay their own foundation and, and blaze their own trail have access yeah. to people as well. So where can people find you online? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, I'm not really online a ton, but when I, I will definitely connect with you. And so you can share it with your readers when our website for my firm is up. And, um, you know, honestly, if you Google me, I'm there. <laughs> you say Google me, baby. I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it at all. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, to our listeners, you know, the drill, if you've enjoyed this episode, like share, subscribe, comment, tell somebody about it, tell three people about it. 
If you are interested in the entertainment world, and I know so many of you are because you reach out to me all the time, <laughs> find Baja Day online. I'm going to tell you to find her because you can. She's out there, obviously. <laughs> There's and not Baja Days. <laughs> exactly. Not, not many, of course. So make sure you look her up. Keep a tab on the work that she's doing in her firm. You know, we're all about supporting each other. And those of you who are on the creative side of things and making strides as well, who are always calling me for guidance and legal advice, there is a whole firm out there whose website is going to be up soon that you can go to and retain uh, and be a paid client for the projects that you have on the horizon. So take advantage. And last, but certainly not least, you know what to do. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.